sir. We just got a priority from command. Well, spit it out, son. We're 30,000 feet in the sky carrying a full payload of nuclear deterrence. Not on some Sunday drive in the country. Yes, sir. Well, sir, it's just we received code R instructions. Do I look like an old mule? Quit with your shenanigans, playing around and such. These orders are confirmed, sir. Oh, shit. Uh, crew, listen up. This is the real deal. We have orders to drop our payload on the podcast late seating and wipe them from the face of the earth. I think I speak for the entire crew when I say it's about time, sir. Ain't that the truth? Gee, I wish we had one of Doomsday Machines, Nancy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Late Seating. I am Jason Harding. And I'm Steve Shives. And on this show, we take a classic movie and see if it lives up to its reputation, whether that reputation is good or bad. And this time around, its reputation is so good, I'm kind of curious as to why we're even fucking reviewing it again. (laughs) Not a whole lot of suspense for this one, I guess, huh? Nah, let's see. Hey, Steve, what movie are we reviewing? We're reviewing... Actually, it's so cool that we're finally doing this movie because it's 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 a, a, a part of one of my favorite series of films ever, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're reviewing Doctor Strange. That's right, we're reviewing Doctor Strange. So, Steve, um, can we have an off-mic conversation real quick? Oh, hey, everybody, yeah, what, what, we're going to be right back. What is it? We're going to be what right back. It? What is it? What is it? What's okay, up? wait. Uh, Gigi, why did you do anything? Talk to me. It's not even 10 years old. What do you think? Oh, oh, that one. Okay, sorry. I, I'll give. I'll take another run at it. Go for it. We're watching that classic 1963 black 64. comedy, 64, 60s, mid, mid to early 60s. Kennedy was dead when they released it, but alive when they shot it. Okay that time period that was his final words i won't see that kubrick Uh, movie oh no but at least i saw the one about sleeping with a 13 year old that really spoke to me that one was hilarious johnny quiet 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 (laughs) well well, i'm sorry and your version was he's trying to leave try to leave with some dignity But I want to talk about sleeping with young children some more. She wasn't really 13. The actress was older. Unfortunately, the president didn't make it. I'm right here. I'm still alive. And I want to state for the record that if there's grass on the infield, play ball. I just want to say for all future generations to hear, I watched Lolita with an erection. (laughs) He's gone. Anybody left? Listening? <laughs> Let's see. Kennedy assassination jokes, pedophilia jokes. <laughs> what can we do to alienate you? If you're listening to the show and you haven't been alienated yet, how can we help? Congratulations, you're one of us. <laughs> you, you're you're just as sick as we are. No, we're the movie we're reviewing, of course, yes. is is the one and only masterpiece by Stanley Kubrick, Doctor Strangelove. Say the whole name. Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Hooray! Yeah, this has been a long time coming, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a big, uh, I mean, because it's a, it's a really big, significant film that we haven't, yeah, that we haven't done yet. 
Yeah, we're scared of it. <laughs> I mean, how are we supposed to make fun of a comedy, Steve? How? We're going to find out. <laughs> okay. Maybe we'll f- go back to our old standby Kennedy assassination jokes. Ah, uh, I've got so <laughs> many of them. So, Steve, do you have any trivia for this for this movie? I do have some trivia for Dr. Strangelove. So, did you do- Great. <laughs> so, um <laughs> Of course, one of the one of the one of the uh, the stars of the movie, Peter Sellers, um, yes. his salary took up over half of the movie's entire budget. Mm-hmm. I think it, the the exact figure is fifty five percent. Fifty five percent of the movie's budget just went to paying Peter Sellers. And Stanley Kubrick later joked that he got three for the price of six because Sellers yeah. plays three characters in the movie. Um, yeah. But it actually paid off because Sellers was nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars for Dr. Strangelove, making him the first actor to ever be nominated for a single film in which he played three different characters. Congratulations. I'm glad it worked out for Peter Sellers. Yeah, I think, I, I, he, you know, if, if somebody would just notice him, he would have been pretty successful. I think. Tell that to Hawk Films, who had to budget it. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, he wants how much? <laughs> I'm sorry, we can't have the topless bikini girl scene because it's going to Peter. Going <laughs> yeah, you know what? <laughs> Sellers is eating the budget. Sellers you can is see eating him the right budget. there. He's just stuffing money directly into his mouth. More like... More like Peter's sellout, am I right? How did you get on my set? <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> get the fuck out, hippie. Hey. Take your fleas with you. Whatever. We're making an anti-war satire here. Whatever, cop. <laughs> this guy's a cop, man. Um, <laughs> also, even though you can't tell because the movie is in black and white, uh, the big table—the yes. big—the big table that everybody sits around in the war room—the mm-hmm. uh, surface of the table is green, and Kubrick specifically wanted that, even though the audience wouldn't know any different, because he wanted the actors who were in that scene or all those war room scenes playing the various military officers and government officials to feel as though they were sitting at a great big poker table. With the idea mm-hmm. being that they were playing poker and gambling over the fate of the world. So, oh, yeah, that's always smart. thinking, always thinking that can't, that that Stanley Kubrick. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, mm-hmm. back to Peter Sellers. It's very, also a very yeah. expressionist set. Oh, it's really. Oh, it's yeah, absolutely. It's not like a realistic. And it's been copied over and over again. In lots of different things. Oh, yeah. But for some reason, war rooms always wind up looking like the war room from, from uh, You're right. Dr. Strangelove. You're right. It is It is one of the most referenced sets, I think, in, in, certainly in the last, in the last from films in the last half of the 20th century. I mean, it's, yeah. Well, for a reason, it's oh, effective. It's a great set. It's a great set. And it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of the most celebrated parts of the film were things that were either improvised or were changed from the original script. And and that's another tr- trivia bit to do with Peter Sellers because mm-hmm. um, his performance as Dr. Strangelove was largely improvised, especially the physical business that he did. Um, mm-hmm. And his performance as the president, where he was basically playing the straight man, uh, was yeah. not written that way in the script. In the script, President Muffley was was just as sort of cartoonish and exaggerated as the rest of the characters. But when mm-hmm. Peter Sellers played it that way on the set, he was so funny that like he was cracking up the crew and everybody. And Kubrick got the idea then 
to have him do the exact opposite and to play it as mm-hmm. the straight man so that he could be the the foil for all the buffoons that he was surrounded by. And that, and that became one right. of the most celebrated, at least in terms of the performance aspect, one of the more celebrated parts of the film. Um, also, one last thing, uh, this was not the only film to be released this year about nuclear war. There was another film, nope. another great film uh, called Failsafe that opened uh, later this same year. And the films have very, very similar plots. But, of course, Dr. Strangelove is a comedy, and Failsafe is an absolutely dead serious drama. Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, not a joke in the thing. And it's actually really interesting. They make a fascinating double feature if you watch one right after the other and to, to compare and contrast them because they are so... Watch Dr. Strangelove last. It's more hopeful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God, Failsafe is bleak. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, imagine imagine the plot of Dr. Strangelove without any of the humor to, to lighten things up. And, I mean, including, like, the ending. Actually, I think the ending of Failsafe is even bleaker than the ending of, of Strangelove. It's not just the lack of humor. It's, like... It's dark, um, mm-hmm. a great movie, but absolutely black. So uh, yeah, that's I've I've always found that interesting that they they that not only are they very very similar in terms of plot, other than not being you know one being a comedy and one being a drama, but they came out within I think eight or nine months of each other, um, and they make for a really interesting comparison and contrast. So that's my trivia. George C. Scott's tumble when he's describing the capabilities yes. of the B fifty two. Was not planned. <laughs> he he didn't plan it, and Kubrick didn't plan it. It just happened. And to George C. Scott's um, credit, he just kept plowing through. Oh, yeah. He took the tumble and continued on with his dialogue. Because George C. Scott is one of the greatest American actors ever. And boy, oh boy, is he good in this movie. Um, Kubrick did do a couple of things. Scott wanted more takes mm-hmm. on some of his stuff. And Kubrick would allow it, but then he would use the take that he already agreed was the best one. Or he would tell Scott, I'm not using this take, and do the scene, and then use that take that he took. Because one of the uh, instructions were, you need to take this script seriously. You need to deliver these performances seriously. Which, by the way, is the trick to doing a good comedy. Your characters have to believe who they are, they have to believe who the who the characters are, and they have to take the scenes seriously. Yeah, right. absolutely. You trust the writer and the director that it's funny, but you need to take it seriously in order for your performance to come out and in order for the humor to be there. Had they been mugging or had they exaggerated their characters a little bit too much, this movie would have failed horribly. And here's, my, here's the best example of that. Originally, Columbia said, we'll bankroll you. But Sellers has to play four parts. Right. And they were like, Bleh? And he said, he needs to play four parts. And they're like, fine. This was, by the way, was not a decision from Kubrick. This was an insistence from the studio. Mm-hmm. So he wound up playing Mandrake, Muffley, and Strangelove. But he was also going to be Major Kong yes. in The Bomber. Okay. And he had, Sellers was a little worried about his Texas accent and all this other stuff, but finally he got it clear. And the only thing that prevented him from playing that part was he injured his ankle and he couldn't do it. So they had to find someone else and he reached out and he grabbed great character actor, um, Slim Pickens, to play the role. Pickens only had the parts of the script that pertained to him and his character. And he was told, this is a drama, play it straight. And that's what he did. No one told him it was a comedy. He just delivered the lines that were on the page to the best of his ability, um, playing it as a straight character, which I think is great. I don't like tricking actors, and I don't like I don't like 
not treating them like the professionals that they are, that they wouldn't be able to turn in a performance right. if you didn't trick them into a performance. But that's what they did with <laughs> Slim Pickens. It worked this time. Yeah, it worked this time. Any other trivia, Steve? I got nothing. Good. It's a pretty That's obscure movie. No, no, people don't really know that much about it. I thought we were done with that joke. I literally thought that you and I walked into a field and shot that joke in the back of its head so that we never did it again. It came back. It makes you look like an idiot, I and love it, it looks like me entertaining an idiot. But that's what? the show. Isn't that our show? <laughs> <laughs> you just described the premise of our show. Of both our shows, actually. Uh-huh. We're like, dang. <laughs> I've never heard of this Doctor Strange glove movie. <laughs> Is this glove strange? It looks just like a normal black glove to me. They're totally ripping off some other movie that I can't think of right now. Are you ready? I'm done. Kind of I'm done. People Go ahead. Made it. Yeah. Great. Go ahead. You can pretend that you don't know who these people are, okay? Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I will. You just watch. I will. You just watch. You've said several times that he's your favorite director, so I, I don't know who you're, who you're okay. trying to fool. All right. It was directed by Stanley Kubrick, Steve. Oh, what else has he done? <laughs> I don't know. Clockwork Orange, oh. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, I've heard that was good. Yeah, you know, the Eyes Wide Shut movie. I, I've heard that's a masterpiece. 2001 A Space Odyssey. I've heard that's okay. Lolita. Eh, Kennedy liked that one. You know, we're, did, we've, did we do... Yeah, we did. We did Spartacus. We've done two Kubrick movies We did Spartacus this, and we did... This year. And we did... Because we, yeah, we did Paths of Glory, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This year. Yeah. He's getting a second bite of the apple on our show. He's, he's Stanley Kubrick. Whatever. <laughs> Produced by Stanley Kubrick. Screenplay by Stanley Kubrick. Also Terry Southern. Who did that stuff? He wrote something. I think he wrote The Magical Christian. Hmm. Um, and Peter George, who barely any of his stuff was left in <laughs> from his book, which this is based off of, Red Alert, mm-hmm. which was an unfunny m- book that he kind of ripped off from Failsafe yeah. when it was a book. So, Or f- it was the reverse. Failsafe ripped him off, is. I think. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Failsafe ripped him off. Starring Peter Sellers as, as we said before, Captain Lionel Mandrake, President Merkin Muffley. Yes, the names are this ridiculous. Yes, oh God, they're all ridiculous. If you want to find out how ridiculous the president's name is, look up what a Merkin is, <laughs> and then a Muff. <laughs> and Dr. Strangelove. Um, you guys know who he is. He's, he's Inspector Cluzo, yeah. if you need if you need it. He's, he's Chance from uh, Being There. Being There, there yeah. He's, he's a great, great, great comedy actor, and apparently a horrible person in nowhere real life. <laughs> and my dog hates him, too. Yeah. That's right, dog. You keep barking at the ghost of Peter Sellers. <laughs> hey, you're talking about Sellers? Fuck that guy. <laughs> George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson. That's right, a character who has turgid in his name. Buck Turgid Son. And you know who he is. He's Patton. Yeah. <laughs> One of the great American actors. And a actors. Whole, whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, yeah he is. Um, Sterling Hayden as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. Get it? <laughs> Do you, did, you, did you get that? His name's Jack D. Ripper. Like the serial killer, y'all. Wait, there's a serial killer named Jack D. Ripper? Jack D. Ripper, the serial killer, yeah. Oh, I thought he was, you know, I don't have a joke. <laughs> I just stopped for a second. Come on, joke generator. I thought like, that was it, a reference out. to the other Jack D. Ripper. We're empty. You didn't warn us that you are going to try to do a Jack Ripper joke. And then I thought, oh, I'll do a Jack Tripper joke <laughs> from Three's Company. But that doesn't make any sense because his name's Jack Tripper. You finish. I'm done. Mr. Roper, what have you done? 
Anyway, you'll know him from The Godfather as the guy who gets shot in the neck, yeah. and 9 to 5 as the guy who gets disemboweled by Herring. I don't know, I can't remember him from 9 to 5, but it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. He was, and he was a favorite actor of Kubrick in the early part of Kubrick's career. Yeah, he was in The Killers. Yeah, he was in The Killers. So, And he's a great actor, and a weirdo in real life. <laughs> He was. He openly said, I come back to Hollywood to, to make some money, but I fucking hate that place. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd come back, fill up his money tank, and leave. He bought a barge. He lived in a barge in Paris. Well, good for him. For a long time. He was, yeah. He kind of fell in love with the Communist Party after he was a war hero. So, yeah. Bet he had, fun. Interesting I bet he had fun playing this part. <laughs> I bet he did, too. <laughs> uh, Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Colonel Bat Guano. Mm -hmm. Bat Guano. That's his name. That's his name. That's the name his mother gave him. Did you know that at one point Bat Guano was one of the most sought after things in the world because of the level of nitrogen within Bat Guano? It made a perfect fertilizer. It's fertilizer. Yeah, I, I did know that. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, he's played uh, by Keenan Wynn. And if you guys don't know the name, look him up and then you'll go, that guy. Exactly. <laughs> He's been in so much stuff. He's a fantastic character actor, and he has been in tons of movies and a lot of TV. Mm -hmm. Slim Pickens is Major T.J. King Kong, and you'll know him from Westerns, but you'll probably remember him best as the evil sidekick to uh, the main villain in uh, Blazing Saddles, yep. where he's hilarious. Um, Peter Bull as Soviet Ambassador Alexei D. Uh, uh, what is it? D. Sadesky. Sadesky. Mm -hmm. And uh, you guys will know him from tons of TV and a lot and a lot of movies. And uh, I think most notably would be the African Queen. He was in that. You'll know him. He kind of looks like a bulldog mm -hmm. a little bit, or a drawing from uh, Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, James Earl Jones yes. as Lieutenant Lothar Zog. <laughs> yep, that's his name. You guys know who he is, do I? Do I have to? And I, Steve? I think this is his first film. Is it? I think. Okay, it's possible. He'd been doing stage a lot. Oh, yeah. He was so. an experienced actor for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he doesn't do a whole lot in this. No. I mean, he has a few lines. It's not anything like you point to him and go, that man, that man is going to be a star! You wouldn't. <laughs> Tracy Reed as Miss Scott, the only woman with dialogue. The only woman, period. Yeah, yeah. It she was the 60s. Movies. Yeah, she made a few movies, but that was about it. Shane Rimmer as Captain Ace Owens. Tons, tons of stuff. But nothing super notable. Nothing that would, you know, where you go, oh, of course, Shane Rimmer. Yeah. Unfortunate last name in this day and age. But I mean, <laughs> the back great then. Rimmer. <laughs> Music by Laurie Johnson. Stuff. Nothing notable. Cinematographer Gilbert Taylor, and you'll see his work in Star Wars and Flash Gordon and... Uh, Voyage of the Rock Aliens. He worked for a long time. Edited by Anthony Har Harvey, and he edited Lolita right before this, and stuff after. Nothing super, <laughs> nothing super normal. Some other stuff, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, production company Hawk Films, distributed by Columbia Pictures, release date January 29th, 1964. Running time, and we'll never get this from him again. Nope. <laughs> 94 minutes. Perfect. Mm, Budget perfect. $1.8 box office 9.4 million so it was a commercial success wasn't it oh absolutely it very much People was yeah stole from it from here until now <laughs> it is a perfect satire review done 
Good night, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Steve, you ready to go into the gloriously black and white world of Dr. Strangelove? I certainly am. Okay, then let's do it. I know you're excited. Should we do that? (laughs) Yeah, we should. Well, you've been only asking about it for six years. Are you coming or not? Every 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 week, it's like Pinky in the Brain. Please, can we do Doctor Strange Love next week? Nah, I don't even know who those are, Brain. <laughs> I don't want to be touched by strange gloves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Uh, you want to go? Let's... Well, you didn't even bring your A game for 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 Brain. I'm sorry. I'm, I don't. I don't really have a brain because brain is like Push an Orson Welles, and I don't. Well, try it. Okay. Just try it. You might like it. <laughs> the same thing we do every night, Pinky. That's not even close. What the hell That's is that? That's not even close. <laughs> That's not even close. <laughs> Why do you have to humiliate me like this? Okay. Number one, his voice is a little higher. He's not a. He's not a baritone. No, the he's not a baritone. Thing we do every night, Pinky. Mm-hmm. He only sounds a little bit like Orson Welles. Hey. It's, I think it's the Orson Welles that's screwing you. Hi, it's me, Brain. I'm the Brain. <laughs> the same thing we do every night, Pinky. But you're killing me. <laughs> Try to take over the world. Okay, this is the reason why I do the shitty impression. This is a failed experiment. Show. What this is, is this is a failed experiment. Yeah, and I'm glad we captured it. So if you get any high ideas, you can come back to this episode and listen to it and go, oh, no, that's... Can't do I that. Can't. can't do that. Uh-uh. No, no, no. I thought I thought I could do a Jeremy Irons impression. Uh, a man's got to have his limitations. I don't know. Who is that? <laughs> That's George C. Scott. Oh, perfect. He is up in the higher register. <laughs> <sighs> Can we go? Let's go. Let's go, go into the world. Let's climb into this B-52 and... <laughs> bomb our careers on the podcast <laughs> and head into the world of Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Steve, take it away. This movie begins, as all great comedies do, with an explanatory title card assuring us that the events of the film, according to the United States Air Force, could never actually happen. That's right, which is bullshit. Which is, which is, the, which is the, the, it's always good to start with a joke, I think, and you know, the movie starts with a joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then we get but then we, we get a we, narrator. We get the opening credits montage, which is f- we get a narrator. Yeah, it's it. Well, no, there. Yeah, there's a narrator. Yeah, about uh, what? And he explains that there's a remote island where the Russians have been working on some sort of secret dastardly thing. And then we go to the credits. Yeah, and, the, and yeah, and the credits are. Um, are and we're like, oh, I wonder if that's Jurassic Park. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> Russian, Russian Jurassic Park. <laughs> Please come see animals. Only only 15 dead today. It's good. We bring back dinosaur you like. <laughs> this come. wretched thing with arms growing out of its back comes out. Look. <laughs> State of the art genetic mutation. He's exactly like T-Rex look. Yeah. His mouth inside out. Cannot... Who knew? Only Russian scientists make make T-Rex like this. Okay. Don't touch it. You think <laughs> you think looks wrong cuz you only see bones. Cannot you cannot tell from bones. That is is uh, propaganda from the west. Yeah. Dinosaurs not as impressive no. as mother Russia. No, they put bones together wrong. This is correct. That's right. Animal with legs growing out of mouth is is correct. Please don't cry, little boy. <laughs> Get him out of here. 
Take him away. Take him away. <laughs> Take him to KGB. We, we bring you new child, better child than don't ask questions. <laughs> we bring you better child. Okay, um, no dinosaurs <laughs> in this movie. Not that Aww. many Russians, really, if you think about it. So um, Not really, one. Just one, just one on screen. So mm-hmm. so that was all completely irrelevant, but, you know. And then um, we get an extended sex scene between yeah, we, we get we get We get, yeah, the footage of, of airplanes refueling in the sky set to, mm-hmm. like, lush romantic music mm-hmm. uh, as the credits are displayed. And, and then... And somebody sure as hell fell in love with these credits, didn't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who's the, I can't remember the name of the director. He's the one that directed The Addams Family and Men in Black. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Barry Levinson. No. Not Barry, not Barry Levinson. Le- not Barry Levinson. <laughs> no, Barry. Oh, oh what's his? Oh, it, it is. If it wasn't set in Baltimore, it's That's not true. Barry Levinson. What's his name? I just, I, it just popped right out of my head along with the jokes for today's show. They just went <laughs> hand in hand. They're like, fuck it. I'm Googling it the right now. The audience knows. Yeah, who was it? Uh, uh, he is a Barry. I was thinking Barry, Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah, Barry Sonnenfeld. If you hadn't noticed, a lot of his earlier films have these exact style of credits. Yeah, oh yeah. And that's what we got, yeah. But we're too distracted by the planes fucking. <laughs> because this this movie is not just about a satire of the about the end of the world and nuclear destruction. It's also a lot about sex. It it's is? a lot about sex. Yeah, it is. That went totally over my head. I'm sorry, sweetie. Yeah. Do you need a book or something? <laughs> <laughs> so we see the planes fuck. Yeah, the planes um, are fucking. Basically, it's a B-52 refueling in mid-flight. Yeah. And actually, if you really want to get, you know, technical, it kind of lo- it's kind of like how dra- dragonflies mate. But in this case, it's obvious that the fuel coming down is a penis, and the hole uh, in the plane is a vagina, and we get to watch that as it pumps its fuel into the B-52. <laughs> Where we go next? Then we find ourselves, we, we fade in uh, at, uh, it's called Burpleson Air Force Base. <laughs> Burpleson Air Force Base. <laughs> and, um, and this is where we meet um, Lionel Mandrake. Right. Who, who is, is a British he's officer. He's a British officer, stationed. yeah. And and he gets approached by another officer who says, hey, the general wants to talk to you. Mm, first they talk over the phone, don't they? Do they? Yes, they do. Oh, that's we, right. Yeah, yeah the general's him, on the phone. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're launching an attack. This is the real deal. Everything is bad. You're, we're going to go to war. And I want you to lock down the base. And I want you to take everybody's radios. Yeah. Can you do that? And he's like, yes, of course. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, no problem radios. at all. I am not suspicious about this. He's like, anybody could communicate to offer, you know, to agents within the base. Yes, I completely understand. Also, you know, if anybody walks up or if you guys see anything that looks normal outside of the base, like nothing's actually going on, just ignore it. Those are all commies. They're all commies pretending that life is normal outside the base to trick us. Get it? Oh, yes, of course. Because we're totally going to war. I totally actually receive these orders. You can't see them because I'm on the phone. But I got orders that we're going. <laughs> we're going toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. You understand? Yes. Yeah, yes, of course. Sir. Good. And he hangs up the phone. He's smoking a cigar the entire time. Yeah. And he starts closing the, the, the shades as the uh, alarms start going off on the base. Right? Right. Then what do we cut to? Then we, this, we cut to, um, do we cut to the plane yet or do we cut to Turgidson? I can't remember what order. It... Well, he in that conversation, he tells them that we're going with code R. Plan R, yeah. Plan R. 
and um, that that that's to be relayed out to all of the B-52s that are flying around with nukes in them. And he goes, okay, and that happens. And I'm not sure if we go to Turgidson or if we go to the, we go to the plane. I think we go to the plane first, yeah. And they're like, hey, we got a code. And they're just sitting around playing cards, jerking off in the bathroom. Doing their thing. You know, they're bored, doing their thing, reading, whatever. And the code comes through and the guy reads it and he's like, oh, look at that, nuclear war. How about that? Okay. Hey, boss, boss. And that's uh, the cat. The, he's not a captain. He's a major. Major, yeah. And he's like, hey, guess what? A nuclear war. And he's like, hot damn. Yippee-dee. Let's go. And they get ready to fly into Russia because they're never more than two hours away from their targets. And they're going to go and they're going to bomb. And we're all like, what? Uh-oh. This what? is sudden. <laughs> and then we cut to General Turgeson, who's fucking a lady that's not his wife. Uh-oh. Oh, that's not good. That's that's bad, that's, right? That's conduct on becoming an officer. Yeah, it is. And, and he gets a phone call saying, uh, shitballs. And he's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> well, for yeah, he tells him, he's and, like, just call the base and talk to General Ripper and, you know, just figure it out. And he's like, well, they, basically, General Ripper took the phone off the hook and nobody can talk to him. So Yeah, no one can talk to him. We don't know what's going on. They've locked the base down. Um, there's a British man saying, it's all right, it's just nuclear war standing by the gate. Um, so could you come in, maybe? It would be a good idea. And he's and he's like, fine. And then he tells the, the girly girl, that's not his wife. Not his wife. How could he? <laughs> Those vows mean something. She's just in her underwear, which probably drove men insane. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I got to become one of them brigadier general kind of guys. And he's like, stay here, honey. Don't talk to my wife or whatever. <laughs> the phone rings. I'll don't answer back. Bucky will be back to have more illicit sex. You. <laughs> and he takes off. Where do we go next, Steve? Uh, do we go to the war room yet? I don't think we go to the war room yet. We go back. Did you even watch? Go back do you to... even like this movie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's okay. Uh, no, no. Or is this this is where um, is it is this where Mandrake finds the finds the radio? He's like he's going through the base, like sort yeah, of clo- so he's he's like, like closing things up, and he finds a radio yeah. that had been hidden like in a piece of equipment, and he just kind of turns it on. And you would think if we're about to go to nuclear war that there'd be news or something that regular programming yeah. would be interrupted. But no, Telling people to get to the air raid yeah. shelters or whatever. But they're just they're just they're just playing music. And he's like And Aha. he's like, Oh and he brings it to he brings it to uh, Ripper, and he says, "It's so curious. They're listening to music and they're not getting ready." I knew that Americans had problems, and they really like ignoring their problems until the very last minute. But really, dance music while nuclear destruction is upon us, and this is where Ripper goes into a really, really crazy tirade. <laughs> it turns out, no. There's not a Russian attack, but the thing is, General Ripper has his reasons. Right, yeah. he has his reasons. He's doing it because he knew that the upper-ups would never do it. Exactly. And so he's doing it for them. You know, he's doing America a favor mm-hmm. because, you know, the, the Ruskies have, is, have infiltrated us. And, and they're everywhere, and we can't stand up to their infiltration. And we especially can't allow the polluting of our precious bodily fluids. Absolutely not. So, Mandrake takes a moment. <laughs> oh, oh, I get it. You're, you're a nut. You're crazy. What does Ripper believe, Steve? He, he believes that communists are responsible for water fluoridation. 
that has mm-hmm. been sapping our precious bodily fluids. Read, making American men impotent. impotent. Yes, absolutely. And that's also, mm-hmm. he says, that's also why Russians only ever drink vodka. Apparently, he believes that Russians don't ever drink water. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they don't ever drink water. You ever see a commie drink water, water man, Drake? They only right. ever drink so vodka. I've, I've ordered a nuclear strike so that we can get this thing straightened out once and for all. By killing half of the him, human population. He asks him, do you ever see me drink water? And he's like, well, I didn't know I was supposed to be paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) But now that you bring it up, no. And he said, it's the fluoridation. It's the fluoridation. It's so nice to hear an actual conspiracy theory in this satire. Yes, yes. (laughs) How come they don't go after iodized salt? (laughs) Don't, well, don't tell them they might. Well, I mean, honestly, we didn't put start putting iodine into salt until we realized we could get rid of goiters and a whole bunch of other health issues if we just put some iodine in the salt. And it did. It, it improved everything. No, but I don't think anyone in the United States knows what a goiter looks like anymore, right? I, I don't think I've ever seen iodine. one. How come that's not a conspiracy? Can I start it? Are, I wish you would. Are they copyrightable? <laughs> yeah, can I be the first one to start a conspiracy theory? So I can start shutting down YouTube Trademark channels. Uh, 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 that's mine. No, no, no. Can't talk about it. Uh, 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 intellectual I property, I get all your monetization. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, the iodine guy got me. <laughs> the iodine guy. <laughs> oh, please do it. So now we're in the war room. Yeah. And they basically do the lowdown. Okay, yeah. here's what's going on. And the, the um, president is very upset with General Turgenson because he's like, how could this possibly have happened? You know, like, mm-hmm. I thought there were safeguards. Is, I thought I was the only one who can order a nuclear strike. And, you know, how can this general as an Air Force base order a nuclear strike? And in this day and age, the fact that the president is the only one that can order a nuclear strike should make you pee yourself and fall <laughs> on the floor. It's As we have seen over the last few years, it's not always the best rule. No, no. I have never been more scared of the president having that power ever. No. Ever. Like, if you're the guy who holds the nuclear football, maybe just mm-hmm. forget the code until January, hopefully, fingers crossed. And that includes all eight years of George W. I, know. I wasn't this scared then, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes he listens to the people around him. Because you know there were people around W who would, who would like, take it away from him. And be like, no, 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 George. No, 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 no. Yeah, George. Do you want your hands taped again? George, no. give it to me. George, <laughs> give, give it to, to me. me. Look, baseball's on TV. Oh. Oh, I like baseball. we got to give him something to do with his hands. <laughs> Maybe he can take up painting or something. <laughs> You're a good painter, George. Yes, you are. You're a good painter. He, he actually is a good painter. He's gotten better. <laughs> yeah, he He's has gotten, gotten a lot better. better. You don't look at his stuff and go, Jesus Christ. No, not, <laughs> what is this, finger painting? Holy shit. <laughs> Did he use a brush? Who gave a brush to, who gave a brush to an orangutan? <laughs> For an orangutan, it's I impressive. On, but I, you know what? I pick on orangutans an awful lot on this show. They're incredibly intelligent animals. I mean, They're my go-to animal when I want to insult somebody. Well, when you want to insult the intelligence of a human. I mean, let's face it. <laughs> but there are other worse animals out there that I could easily pin stuff That's to. That's true. Right. What Wolverine walked through finger paints for this? <laughs> Wolverines are dumb, aren't they? Are they kind of dumb? I don't know. I don't know. I have a kind of respect for all animals everywhere. Me too. Kind of, yeah. So I guess I should stop using animals, huh? I mean, it would be less hypocritical of you. But I like being a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I don't see the problem. 
Yay! <laughs> problem solved. Where are we um, in this? In this? Oh, so anyway, he's like, "How did this happen?" And Turge is like, "Well, there's a thing that says that they can do it, and he did it." And I'm like, "Great. So how are we going to get out of this mess?" I know. Let's invite a foreign dignitary from the country we're bombing into the war room. Right. Oh, man, this is where it really starts to get funny because the president's idea for just, you know, not only to find a resolution, but also for sake of transparency is to invite the Russian ambassador into the war room while they try to plot strategy. And mm-hmm. one of the great, most famous lines in the movie is is, is Turgenson going, but Mr. President, so, Turg- yeah. he'll see everything. But- he'll see the big board. but it's followed very shortly by probably the one of the most famous lines turgidson grabs him grabs alexi and start because the president has gotten a phone call he grabs alexi and they start wrestling turgidson said i caught him taking a camera taking pictures with a secret camera and the famous line is gentlemen please you can't what was it you can't fight here this is the war room (laughs) yes said absolutely straight Mm -hmm. which is so funny yeah but then we quickly cut to the phone call oh yes he's calling the russian premier he's calling the russian premier to try to tell him that they've accidentally launched a nuclear strike on all of russia (laughs) and well sorry and it is one of the most it's one of the funniest underplayed petulant conversations you'd ever (laughs) expect to hear between two world leaders who have a hard time agreeing that they're both great <laughs> that they're both doing fine before he even launches into the fact that these and so their plan is their plan is we're going to help you if we can't recall them i'm going to help you shoot down our, our planes right that's the only right. alternative yeah in the meantime they've ordered the military to retake the base where ripper and mandrake are right and so we cut over to scenes of soldiers um, you know, going in and trying to attack the base. When I was younger, I thought they were using stock footage. They weren't. No, but it looks so, really authentic. Well, that's because he switched to his handheld yeah. battle camera yeah. to to shoot the guys. And what it does is it does this great job of showing the people on the inside who control everything and the people on the outside who have to do everything. <laughs> yep. It sets up a really good contrast between these smooth, beautiful takes inside the war room or inside the base where where Mandrake is, and then you cut to ba- basically battlefield footage where people are shooting and, you know, they're having to fight their own soldiers to get in and retake the base, right? Mandrake, on the meantime, has had a long time basically being held hostage by a lunatic. <laughs> but he's managing to piece together some stuff, right? Right. He's managed to piece together that he thinks he knows what the recall code is. Right. Right. Eventually, the boat, the the uh, the base gets uh, overtaken, you know, and that's where we meet Colonel Batguana. <laughs> and General Ripper, General Ripper kills himself. Yeah, General, yeah, he kills himself. And uh, Batguano <laughs> suspects Mandrake of having killed yeah. him, and he spends a good deal of time trying to convince Colonel Batguano that he needs to get these codes back to the war room in order to, you know... Basically save, save the world. world. Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, the B fifty two has been evading strike, you know, because now they've been allowed, you know, to know where the planes are and how to shoot them down, and they've been avoiding being shot down this whole time. And what they decide to do is they go low. Mm-hmm. 
to avoid radar, right? Right. Well, they get damaged. There's a All missile that explodes near them that damages them, and then they, they, they yeah, fly low. Exactly. Yeah, Right. But eventually, they get the recall codes, and they call back all the rest of the planes, and everyone's happy. Everyone's like, yay! Except one of the planes didn't come back. Uh-oh. And it's the plane with their guys on it, and that's because their radio has been damaged. Right. They never got the recall so code, yeah. Right. So now everyone's gunning for them. There's this great scene where he asks Turgidson, um, could they possibly get through the to target through the to the target? And he gives this huge thing and I think that's where he does the the unintentional barrel roll. Yeah. But what's so great is that he is so enthusiastic about the plane's capabilities and what they can do, and you can see he's obviously you know, um, taking a great deal of pride in what what they could possibly do, but he doesn't realize because he ends with them saying they absolutely can't get to their target, and he doesn't realize what he's saying until the very right. end of that moment. <laughs> like that's not he, what we want, Buck. <laughs> yeah, when he suddenly realized what he just said. So now everybody is hoping that they're going to be able to find and shoot down the B fifty two. Well, because I think we we should mention at this point because we we didn't mention it earlier uh, the idea of the doomsday machine. Because right. After, so at the end of the phone call, yeah. he talks to uh, Alexi, and the 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 premier tells Alexi that the Doomsday Machine is functioning, and that they were, and then that's when we first meet Doctor Strangelove, and um, so everyone got the note to play this serious, <laughs> <laughs> except for Doctor, except for Sellers when he's playing Doctor Strange. Oh my God who is a German scientist dressed all in black, confined to a wheelchair. His right hand is gloved, when his other one isn't. And his right hand appears to be his subconscious trying to kill him for, <laughs> yes. betraying, for betraying his old allegiance to the Nazis. At one point, his hand comes up and nearly strangles him. And when he starts talking about defending the homeland or anything like that, yeah. his hand shoots up and Sieg hails. <laughs> yeah, and he, he has to grab it and force it down. And oh. beat it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he is constantly calling the president my Fuhrer. <laughs> it is a great performance. Oh. And what he basically said, they ask him, is this doomsday machine possible? And what the doomsday machine is, is that they've buried gigantic bombs that if they ever, if Russia ever gets attacked, they will all explode and cover the planet with radiation, killing everything on the surface of the planet. Yeah. And Strangelove, Strangelove correctly points out that the sole purpose of doing that is so that everyone knows about it. Otherwise, it's useless. And he's like, so why didn't you tell everybody about your doomsday machine? And they were like, well, we were going to announce it on Monday. <laughs> right. We were, we were getting around there because the premier loves surprises. Is mm-hmm. what Alexei says. He loves surprises. So literally, if the B-52 crew manage to attack a target with a nuclear weapon, it'll set off the doomsday machine. Yeah. Right? So then we have a scene... No, that's basically it. The, they, they encounter a number of problems. One of the, They're getting ready to choose their alternate target, not their primary target, um, because they're running out of fuel, because mm-hmm. they have a leak in the plane from the attacks. And uh, they're getting ready. They're almost over the target, and uh, there's a problem with the bomb bay doors, with, yep. the, with the bomb release. So Kong climbs out, gets on top of the uh, the uh, nuclear weapon <laughs> to try to get it to drop, and I guess he succeeds, huh, Steve? Oh yeah, because it drops all right. And it drops, and he yeehaws all the way down to the bottom. 
Um, subtle metaphor there because he's straddling it. <laughs> subtle metaphor that it doesn't it doesn't look like he has a gigantic nuclear dick as he's falling <laughs> as he's falling to his target. Target blows up, nuclear explosion. Whoops! And we cut to the war room. And what are they talking about in the war room? Well, now that uh, it looks like the doomsday machine is going to be triggered. They're figuring out what do we do next, and and how can right. we how can we survive this? And Doctor Strangelove has an idea that if they can relocate a, a certain portion of the population at the mm-hmm. bottom of a deep mine shaft, one hundred thousand people. <laughs> yeah, the the nuclear radiation from the Doomsday Machine will not be able to reach them, and they'll be able to survive under there. For he he and said, come up after a hundred years. Uh, come up after a yeah. hundred years when the radiation has has gotten to survivable levels, and they can just repopulate mm-hmm. society. Um, yeah, of course you're going to have to have a ten to one ratio. Oh yes, of women to men <laughs> to ensure. <laughs> but, and the women have to be absolutely beautiful. Uh, Buck likes the sound of that. <laughs> to ensure the procreation. Yeah, and and he said one of my favorite line readings from from Sellers is strange mm-hmm. when he's describing how they could survive. He says, "Well, we mm-hmm. could grow our own food, plant vegetables. Animals have could be animals. bred and slaughtered." Slaughtered. <laughs> <laughs> And everyone around them is like, hey, that sounds like a really good idea. Sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. Alexei compliments him on him. He also distances himself for a moment so that while he's pretending to uh, tie his shoes, he's taking pictures of the big board with his his pocket watch camera. Yes. And uh, as he's ending his crescendo and everyone's talking about it, he says, mind fewer. (laughs) He stands up out of his chair. stands up out of his wheelchair. (laughs) And his last line is, mind fewer. I can walk. (laughs) (laughs) And then we cut to the ending montage of all the bombs going off. To what? To the tune of We'll Meet Again. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was a suggestion from Spike Mulligan. Well, it was a good a one. Friend of Pete, a friend of Peter Sellers. He said that should be that should be. And so we see the bombs going off, and the will meet again, and then the movie's over, and you don't leave the theater feeling awful. Incredibly, so it was like yeah. I stopped worrying about the book. <laughs> Maybe it wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> so, Steve, mm-hmm. how do you feel? And you can go whole hog. If you need to gush and cry or do whatever it is you need to do, I'm giving you permission to just let it loose, my friend. I don't care if it's an incoherent, half-masturbatory ramble. Please. How do you feel about the movie Dr. Strangelove or How I Stopped Worrying and Loved the Bomb? Whatever it is. How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. You don't know what you're asking for. Um, I do. I, I I I love this movie. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. It's one of my favorite comedies. I think it's legitimately one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Um, I'm not breaking any new ground in film analysis to say that this is the turning point in Kubrick's career. Uh, mm-hmm. He made great films before this. Certainly Paths of Glory would be one. Pa- Paths of Glory is still, I think, one of his very, very best movies ever. But but Dr. Strangelove 
was the turning point in his career after which he became Stanley Kubrick, like the the director that we all sort of picture this him This started as. it, 2001 cemented it. Yeah, this, this was his last black and white film. This was his last film, uh, I think, pre- I'm pretty sure his last film that was under two hours is, uh, of running time. Um, his last comedy. His last comedy, for sure. And because it was so successful commercially and critically, this was really the movie that enabled him to spend the rest of his career doing pretty much whatever he wanted. To allow him to become a lot infantile. Yeah, exactly. And and when he when when he said, "I want to do Barry Lyndon, where you know I'm not going to use any any artificial light, and it's basically just a demo reel for my camera and my lenses." The studio said, okay, <laughs> you know, go for I'm it. I'm going to make a very pretty, boring film. And he did. You mean you're making a pretty, boring film? No, pretty, comma, comma boring. Boring film. <laughs> and he did, and he got a Best Director nomination for that shit. Choke of course on he did. Um, <laughs> but so, but it... it Strange Love is, is, is his turning point, I think. But it, and it's a very interesting turning point because it's both like and unlike his other films. It has lots of the classic Kubrickian trademarks, which he would continue to refine in, in his work that came after this. You have the deliberate, patient pacing of scenes. You have the careful use of silence and stillness. You have his his habit of shooting actors in very striking close-ups, especially Sterling Hayden in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, presenting everything with this sense of detachment, as though the camera is just a neutral bystander rather than a participant, and working mm-hmm. in long takes, and especially when Strangelove comes on as a character, and you, you, there are these takes of Peter Sellers as Strangelove that just go on forever, and they are so funny. All the stuff about when his hand is choking him, and he's beating it back, <laughs> and biting it, and fighting mm-hmm. it, like that, a lot of that stuff is, is single takes that just go on and on and on. He just points the camera at Peter Sellers and lets it run, and it is hysterical, because he knows, okay, I just need to, I just need to get this. Like, I, I just need to let him go, and it'll go long, but it'll be worth it, like, because that's just what it needs. Um, so, so it has all of those elements. But it is also, in many ways, a cartoon. I mean, the, the movie is celebrated for being razor-sharp razor satire, which it totally is, but it's also very broad. I mean, the main performances are so big and theatrical. There are moments of outright slapstick, either intentional or unintentional, like the when when Turgidson falls over and then pops right back up and points at the board. You know that that wasn't a, a planned mm-hmm. moment, but it plays like perfect slapstick. And uh, then, of course, the, well, the you do know what the ending, the original ending, the original ending was going to be a pie fight. Yeah, yeah, it was going to be a pie fight um, in the war room, and and they actually shot it, but Kubrick decided not to use it. Um, Good, because I yeah uh, yeah I I agree. It would I, it would have been too much. I think it would have been too much. Um, And when I say that, when I say that it's a cartoon, I mean, I certainly don't mean that to disparage it because those cartoon elements work. I mean, they're they're really, really funny and they feed into the satire because the main satirical point of this film is that these people, the people in charge of nuclear weapons are buffoons. They are the last people who ought to be trusted with this responsibility. And their silliness and their ineptitude is what allows the movie to show us that nuclear war itself is an absurdity. The fact that we could even be in this situation is absolutely absurd. 
that we would find ourselves in a scenario like this where the fate of millions of lives would rest on what a few people in a couple of rooms decide to do. That is absurd. And that is one of the core messages of the film. And it delivers that message by showing us these guys are doofuses. These guys have no idea what they're doing. Look at this. This whole thing is a comedy of errors and millions of people are going to die because of this. This is ridiculous. So it's a very important message. It's a, still a very timely one, unfortunately, but it was especially timely when the film was made during the height of the Cold War. And it delivers that message in a way that is still today just incredibly funny. It's impressive how little this film feels dated for as old as it is, and especially its sense of humor does not feel dated at all. It, feel, it feels like a very modern, cutting-edge sense of humor. And I think maybe that's because that sense of humor is so dark. It's absolutely black. And dark humor has only become more popular and more commonplace in the decades that have followed. It's become a lot more normalized in popular culture than it was. Um, but I also think it's because the movie uses humor in, in two ways. Um, a lot of Dr. Strangelove is what I would call conceptually funny, but not necessarily funny in the way in a way that makes you laugh out loud. And a good example of this is the way Kubrick uses that the music as a counterpoint during the opening credits and the closing montage. You know, he plays the like the lush, romantic, nostalgic music um, during the credits and and then during the the montage of the bombs exploding. And it's a really it's a funny idea, and especially in the closing montage, it makes for this very very dark joke but it doesn't actually make me laugh. Um, and then ditto for the shots during, during the scenes of the fighting at the base. You get those repeated shots of the billboard that says, peace is our profession, while people are killing each other in the foreground. Um, really, really funny dark joke, but not funny in the sense that it makes me laugh. But then there are other bits that actually are laugh out loud funny, like when General Ripper goes on his deranged rants about contamination of bodily fluids by communists. And by the way, the film's most outspoken anti-communist is a paranoid lunatic, which is also a very clear and deliberate satirical choice um or or the president that that phone call with the premier which you know you praised it already and i'll just i'll second what you what you said already I and mean, it's it's the funniest scene in the movie it's one of the funniest scenes in anything that i've ever seen uh peter sellers that's his triumph i mean sellers has some great moments in in the movie as mandrake and as strangelove but his best his best work i think is as the president on that phone call i mean bob newhart himself could not have done that any better uh, <laughs> bob the, newhart the, could have done the shit out of that monologue oh my god can you imagine if newhart did that monologue? it would have been hilarious but i i mean because uh -huh. it is it's it's a newhart bit it's a bob yes, newhart it bit. it's a one-sided phone call and um the timing, the delivery, it's perfect. Like watching Peter's, and, and no matter how many times I watch it, I always laugh, and Shit. I always laugh at the same parts. Newhart could have played that role. He could have. He totally could have. Mm. He would have been great. No, he had to contend with the demand from Columbia. <laughs> Gotta have Peter Sellers play everything. Um <laughs> But yeah, that 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 phone call is is perfection. And like I say, it, no matter how many times I watch it, it makes me laugh, and it makes me laugh in the same places. Like even though I know it's coming, it makes me laugh every time when when he when he says, "Well, they went and did a silly thing. They went and <laughs> launched an attack on your country." Like that just I that mm -hmm. drops me every time because he's trying to deliver the worst news ever in the most pleasant way he can, and there's just no way to do it. And then him um, trying to calm down the premiere after that yes. statement. Now, now, now Dimitri. Dimitri. <laughs> well, how do you think I feel, Dimitri? It is a friendly call. 
I know you feel terrible. <laughs> imagine but I feel, how I feel. <laughs> imagine how I feel. <laughs> oh my God. It's just, it's, and of course, so we have these two lines of sort of conceptual humor and laugh out loud funny humor, and they intersect near the end when we get to what I think a lot, what I would call and what a lot of people would agree is the defining image of the film, which is Major Kong riding the nuke all the way down. Right. While he's waving his cowboy hat and yipping and yahooing all the way. And I mean, because that is conceptually funny and that is actually laugh out loud funny. And it's what, a multi-level satiric it, image. It's In, so because you, you mentioned the yeah, the nuclear the nuclear bomb sort of looking like like his dick. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact it, that it's a cowboy. A cowboy, absolutely like what what more perfect like visual statement of the film's central point could there be? Uh-huh. Than an American cowboy, ex- like just exuberantly riding a nuclear bomb uh-huh. all the way down, not only to his own death, but to then trigger the death of human civilization as we know it. And he's uh-huh. yipping and yahooing and waving his hat around and just loving every second of it. It is so funny and so dark. <laughs> And and just piercingly satirical. It's 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 genius. It's brilliant. So yeah, I love this movie. Um, it's one of <laughs> Kubrick's best films. It's one of the greatest films ever made by mm. anybody anywhere. And yeah, it's I love it. Classic. Easily. If this isn't a classic, nothing is. All right, clean yourself yeah. up. I'm I've got to change my shirt. <laughs> There's money on the drawer. So <laughs> Kubrick originally intended to make this a thriller, you know, much in the same line along the same lines as Failsafe. His original mm-hmm. concept. And as he investigated the rules or the um the uh, psychology employed through uh, mad or mutually assured destruction, he realized the paradox of such a situation, right? The whole idea behind the nuclear arms race was to make sure that if you attack us, we attack you and we destroy everything. Right. Mutually assured destruction. And he found that to be madness. He found it to be, you know, the perfect... Because he views people paradoxically, right? When he examines, usually in a lot of his movies, when he examines something, he's examining something very specific in his films, right? You take a look at Clockwork Orange or something like that. It's usually a single individual, and he's exploring that specific thing about people, right? right? When he narrow when he narrow focuses, he's usually narrow focusing on an individual. Whether it's Barry Lyndon, whether it's uh, whatever the fuck his name is, is Clockwork Orange. Um, Two thousand one <laughs> is more about humanity itself, right? The paradox of us being technologically advanced, but still seemingly this kind of below the surface, very base, violent species. And he decided, no, I want this to be a comedy, a dark sat, uh, a dark satire. And that was the best decision he made for presenting this, because otherwise it just would have been another, you know, nuclear fear movie. And we were getting those already. Failsafe was already, you know, was was in preparation to coming out. These kinds of movies were going to come out because he wasn't the only one that realized just how dangerous this thing was. I laugh out loud almost at everything in this movie. <laughs> I think this is Kubrick's best film. I include 2001 in that. I include his, include his later films going down the road. I think this is his best movie. And it's so skillfully directed that you might not notice just how skillfully directed it is because it is entertaining. Mm-hmm. It is still funny despite the subject matter. You know, 
one of the best directions of the way he did it, he shot it like a drama. He had the actors act in it like a drama so that they took the script seriously. And that lends to um, the overall, you know, he knew he wouldn't be able to get away with this if this all just seemed like clouds, right? Mm-hmm. You say that they're overdrawn, and I would agree with George C. Scott that he's a little more um, lively than everyone else. <laughs> yes, very lively. But it's, but it's fitting with his character and the way he looks at things. You know, when 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 uh, uh, Muffley says he's going to give the codes to shoot down his own planes, they cut to a shot of George C. Scott reacting to that. <laughs> um, and what he's really doing is he's capturing all of the thinking, the ridiculous thinking of these people who are in control of the destruction of the planet mm-hmm. and how fucking ridiculous they are. The things that they say in the film are things that was the thinking behind the entire nuclear arms race to begin with was this idea, if we have more, then they won't, you know, that, hey, if you shoot us, we'll kill everybody, you know, we'll retaliate, and we'll kill you, and, oh, by the way, we'll probably wind up killing the rest of the planet, but, you know, whatever. Which is, in in and of itself, one, terrifying, but two, kind of funny. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's kind of funny thing to do that. And he proposes this what-if situation. What if one of the guys is crazy? And what if one of the guys decides to launch? I mean, is there a way around it? He did his homework. He investigated the entire thing. They had to put that stipulation that this couldn't possibly ever, ever happen. Everyone stopped freaking out. It's comedy. You're supposed to laugh at it. Ha ha, it's funny. But he was trying to make a point of this. And it wasn't about nuclear war. It was about people. The point wasn't about necessarily mutually assured destruction. But the fact that it was laid in the hands of these fucking apes called yes. the human race. Yes. Okay. And the point he's trying to make at the very end is, yeah, yeah, the, the doomsday device went off, but this isn't over. The whole point of we'll meet again literally means that they're going to dig down and a hundred years later, they're already arguing about who will have more nukes when they come out of the caves. They're already talking mm-hmm. about it. They don't want there to be a mine shaft gap. Yeah, we can't have a mine shaft gap. <laughs> and the fact, even when they bring up the doomsday machine, Dr. Strangelove said, we, we looked into it, but we thought it was untenable, right? We didn't think it was something that we would want to invest in but the well, the Russians did which would of course mean that we'd have a dooms they start talking about having a doomsday machine gap <laughs> a doomsday Turgeson, machine gap Turgeson says to a colleague boy I wish we had one of them doomsday machine things as he's hearing about it this is commentary about people not just the people in power but just people and that's what makes it great we can recognize that we can recognize that it's ridiculous but we can also recognize that there are people like that in the world right one of the great things about ripper is that ripper is dead serious which makes his crazy even crazier right yeah and he's not doing it for jokes his monologue about fluoridation is in and of itself funny but his character is not delivering it like he's a lunatic He's Uh delivering it straight. And that dedication to keep it... I mean, it's not shot like a comedy, right? It's not shot like a traditional comedy. A lot of his focus, when they're in the war room, has like eight people in the shot. But the focus is supposed to be between the people who are talking. He's he's shooting it like a drama. Yeah. And, you know, that lends to the humor rather than dis- distracts from the humor. Part- partially because he's shooting it like it's real life, as close as he can. 
And by by drawing in the real life scenario, rather than scaring people, the absurdity increases as it continues to go along. As you know, as weird as Turgeson gets, and how he is literally stifling a boner any time he talks about our capabilities. <laughs> you know, his paranoia gets increased, but not to the point where he kills the the Alexi. At the end, they all seem like they're friends when they know that the you know. The doomsday machines are going off and they're talking. He's still there. What happens to him after the end of the movie? Do they just <laughs> kick him out of the war room and say, fuck off? <laughs> Get out of here. Exactly. <clears throat> and of course, it's, it's, if you had any doubt, is this a satire? I'm not getting these jokes. Just look at the fucking names. For the love of God. There's someone here. That, James Earl Jones plays Lothar Zog. That is not a human name. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a Klingon. Mm-hmm. The fact that the president is named after two hair uh, appliances is right near like hair related terms. Yeah, hair related terms. A muff and a merkin, both groin related. Yep. Okay. So I mean, yeah, I can't. I I could repeat everything that Steve said. But this is a movie. If you watch it and you rewatch it, you start picking up on the sex metaphors that that run throughout this entire thing. The whole ending is predicated on the idea that these men get to go into a cave, sex metaphor, and fuck ten <laughs> women. <laughs> sex, not metaphor. That's the selling point. But there's lots of other subtle stuff that I think is great. The whole fact that strange love is constantly at war with his own body <laughs> where he can't deliver a monologue without his hand rising up to to either prevent him from doing what he's doing or just as an a, a, you know some sort of deeply subconscious need to bow to an authority figure with a sieg heil um is brilliant it's brilliant this is this is seller's best performance he doesn't have another good one, I think, until being there. There's, and I'm including the Clouseau stuff, because the Clouseau stuff is straight physical comedy. Mm-hmm. right? And he's really good at it. Don't get me wrong. I love, oh, some, I love those movies. But this is his best performance, not just because he's playing more than one person, but because you forget at some point that he's playing more than one person. Mandrake is not the president, and the president is not strange love. George C. Scott, who is known is not necessarily known for comedy, is one of the funniest characters in this movie. Mm, definitely. And everyone else is fine. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, the thing is, is they're they're so good that everybody else, I mean, all everybody else needs to be is fine. Mm -hmm. Because the strength of those main performances is so powerful. (laughs) I would love to shout out Keenan Wynn, however, as Bacuano, (laughs) who is just this humorless dude. Who, who argues with Mandrake about shooting a Coca-Cola machine. <laughs> about everything. To get change. He's, and then know, get sprayed in the face. <laughs> you don't get the president on that line. You'll have to answer for it. He's like, you'll have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> so, yeah. Do I think it's a great movie? Yeah. Is it one of my favorite movies? Yeah. Is it one of my favorite movies of all time? Yeah. <laughs> it is. You all, I really like this movie. <laughs> This has my favorite kind of comedy writing. Comedy based on the characters in it. What makes the president's whole monologue funny is not just the president, the way he plays him, but the nature of the dialogue that's there. It's on the page. 
and Sellers trusted the, the page to be funny. He read it perfectly, but it was in the writing, in the script, that made it stand out as one of the best monologues, period, in a movie in the last hundred years or so. So, yeah, if you haven't seen it, we've ruined it, but we haven't. You need to watch it. You need to watch it. If you're on pins and needles, oh, do they? does the world end? No, it ends. So don't worry about that part. <laughs> it ends. It's good, though. <laughs> Please. Classic. Trust us. <laughs> Steve? Yes, my Now friend. it's time for you to not recommend a movie. So do it. Hurry up. Do it. Not recommend something. Okay, I'm going to not recommend um, another Peter Sellers movie because okay. as you as as you say, I mean he's he's absolute genius in in this, but uh, he did make some movies that weren't so good. And unfortunately, one of his one of his biggest misfires was also his final film that he made during his lifetime. Technically, um, technically, uh, and it's a movie that uh, he, well, he, it, he plays he plays a very he, he it's it's very fiendish he plays a very a, a very problematic character what so and and not only is this character very problematic it's also just generally not a very good movie period even mm-hmm. apart from those problems the movie i'm not recommending is peter sellers <sighs> as fu manchu in the fiendish plot of dr fu manchu um, a movie so racist that it even has <laughs> a that it even has a Chinese food joke on the poster, which reads, <laughs> which reads, beware, if you see this movie, an hour later, you'll want to see it again. That's not true. And it's probably funnier than anything in the movie, sadly. But, I um, saw that movie years ago, and I don't remember a single fucking thing about it. <laughs> it's not, it's not good. Um, it has, think? it has, and it's one of those movies. I, I feel like this happens multiple times when I when I do these not recommendations. On paper, it has a really good cast. Not only Peter Sellers, but uh, Hel- Helen Mirren is in it. Uh, Sid Sid Caesar is in yeah. it. I mean, it's like it's, you would think like, oh, these are some these, these are some great actors. I mean, comedy legends are in this, right? Nope, it's garbage. It's complete crap. You don't ever have to watch it. You don't ever have to see it. Just don't. Just keep thinking Let, that being there is his last movie. Exactly. Everybody else does. Let him let him rest in peace, please. Well, as you guys know, I like to recommend a movie from the same year as the movie that we just reviewed. And it's 1964, and um, there's nothing else that compares to this that I think is horrible. So I'm just going to pick a movie from 1964 <laughs> that I don't want you guys to watch. Hey, you know what's really fun, Steve? What? A musical about some boring person that we don't really give a shit about. Isn't that great? Oh, that sounds awesome. That's oh, That sounds like my favorite kind of movie. That's right. The movie that I'm telling you guys not to watch is The Unsinkable Molly Brown with Debbie Reynolds. What's it about? Uh. Who cares? <laughs> it's about some lady. It's about some lady. And she marries some guy for money. And then she keeps traveling to Europe. And then at the end, she becomes a hero because supposedly she saved some some people from from the sinking of the Titanic. And you know you have a good movie when the sinking of the Titanic is background shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really about the Titanic. Yeah, isn't it great to have the symbol where thousands of people, I don't know how many people died, uh, where hundreds of people, I guess, died in a tragedy on the poster. 
with the unsinkable Molly Brown just like, I did it. I survived. I'm a down home. Who cares about this woman and her money shit and marrying guys for money and money and I'm gonna, I'm bored and there's singing and now I'm, I don't like Debbie Reynolds anymore. Don't, (laughs) don't, don't, just don't. There's nothing to say. It has nothing to do with any person other than, I guess, Molly Brown. And it's just, it's just, it's you know, the Titanic stuff comes at the very end, and it helps her, I guess, make a decision that she's gonna be in love with the man she originally married, or something. <laughs> just don't see it. It's not so bad. Good for her. Like ha ha ha. <laughs> it only took hundreds of people dying in order for her to realize some sort of life choice. Great. <laughs> I'm glad it worked out for her. Thank God this isn't a modern tale, or it'd be her standing on top of the Twin Towers. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. Then it would still be called the unsinkable Molly Brown, but who would give a shit? (laughs) Hey, Steve. Oh boy. Yes, Jason? Hey, Steve, I was thinking Uh that maybe, just maybe... Uh Uh-huh, yes, yes. You need to make a terrible choice. Oh! I thought that's where you were going. Now is the time that Steve must choose blindly from three movies. He does not know what those movies are. Nope. And he gets to pick from three of them, and that's going to be the movie we're going to review next. So, Steve, I have laid before you three pearls from the cinematic oyster bed. Oh, boy. A, B, or C. Before we continue forward, I would like to say that all three of these movies come from a cinematic master. We've never covered, (gasps) and we really should, because the man is a goddamn badass and a legend. Okay? Okay, wow. Yes. So, not all of them were good, but (laughs) you can't ignore the man's talent. Okay. 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 A, B, or C. Uh, I'm going with C. Uh, God damn it! It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I, be I fine. hate it when I, I say I say a letter and then you always have this. You have there's a moment and then it's just disappointment. There was <laughs> there was once a man who made movies with images in them that were indelible once okay. you saw them, especially sure. if you were of a certain age. He's mostly known as a special effects person. He did all of his work from his garage. <gasps> Some attribute him to having invented Dynamation, mm. which is bullshit, because <laughs> no one called it that except the studios. What he was was a stop-motion effects master. And every, almost all modern special effects people, whether they're doing CG or puppets or whatever they're doing to get their special effects on board, all acknowledge him as one of the greatest masters of visual effects or special effects or stop motion effects in the world. That person was Ray Harryhausen. Mm -hmm. We've never done any of his movies to our eternal shame. That's true. So out of the choices... If Steve had chosen A, we would have watched the one that really put him on the map, and that's The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Hmm. made in the 1950s. Had he chosen B, we would have watched the equally successful 1960s Jason and the Argonauts. Hmm. But Steve chose his swan song. (laughs) The last Ray Harryhausen film. Well, when he saw that other special effects were just walking right by him, but he wanted to do another one, and so the movie we're going to review 
is the 1980s Clash of the Titans. There we go. That's not so bad. Starring my favorite actor, Lawrence fucking Olivier. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to say Harry Hamlin. Harry Hamlin's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's what he's been hearing his entire career, I think. I'm glad you chose Clash. I'm glad you chose Clash. It's a good, it's a fun movie. It'll be easier to make jokes, but I'm sad that you didn't chose Clash because the skeleton fighting scene in Jason and the Argonauts is a fucking masterpiece. Classic. And we don't get to say anything about it because we're going to come up with the fact that there aren't two titans fighting. In the movie, <laughs> you but you you get to make all you get to make all of your really really mean hateful Olivier jokes. That's true, I do. You know, that's true. You get to piss on the legacy of one of the most celebrated actors of the 20th century. They will fight Titan against Titan. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you want to get all my anger towards Olivier, then you'll watch Clash of the Titans before our next review. And that's it. Thanks, you guys, for listening in as we calm ourselves over. (laughs) The joke tank is dry. It is dry. Yep. We're shooting dust. We're shooting dust. We're we're shooting joke dust. As we just, you know, fanboy away on on that movie we just, Doctor Strange, love, and his incredible furry adventures. (laughs) Or how I learned... To stop worrying and love the bump. Mm. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. Steve doesn't care. He, doesn't. I don't, he, it, he really I'm, has. I don't know why he does the show. I'm just here for me. Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, uh, thanks, you guys. And until next time, uh, watch, a, watch a movie this week. And this has been Steve Shives. And don't forget the advice that my father gave me when I was a teenager to practice. Uh, more advice from a relative. To practice safe sex. Don't avoid women, but deny them your essence. Is that what I'm doing wrong? Uh, I mean, what 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 is? The I might as well getting? have a sign around my neck that says "Free Essence, Come yeah. Get Some." No, no, no. You want to deny them your essence. Does it matter how I dish it out? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm just wondering, because there's a number of ways you can deliver essence. Well, you know what? I guess, really, there's only one particular delivery point that is the problem. Yeah, but I mean, do you you take it orally? Orally is fine. No, actually, oral essence taking is completely fine. What about anally? That's fine, too. Geez, you're open for everything. No, I'm not. That's amazing. That's the whole point. (laughs) So I need to clarify. I'm talking about essence, like, in the Dark Crystal? Oh, no, I'm talking about... I'm talking about jizz. Ugh, what? What are you talking about? I'm you talking know, essence. about essence. The yeah, essence. Your, your essence. Your living essence and yeah, someone comes your, up yeah, and they, jizz. they make you stare at the dark crystal and then you can drink it from a flask, but now apparently no. I can take it anally. No, I'm talking it's about gross. No, I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm talking I'm no, I'm talking about jizz. Just jizz. So what are you saying? That 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 the dark crystal was wrong and they should have been sucking off those gelfling? Would have made a more interesting movie, don't you think? I don't think we'd remember it as fondly. Probably if not. If we had to see that scene. It wouldn't be all ages, I guess, anymore. <laughs> that Was it all Jim ages? Henson, that prude Jim Henson would never have gone for it. What happened at the end of this movie? I don't want to talk about it. Something happened. <laughs> Children started crying. <sighs> Mommy, what are they life. doing? <laughs> 
Why are they naked now? Why? <laughs> <sighs> Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. I like we to improve whole, things. I like to make things better, and I feel like I've done that. The whole end of the show is gross now. I feel sticky. I mean, you know, I what do you really expect me not to say something? And your about... family is weird. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you bring them up, it's like remember what my grandma always used to say. <laughs> Just don't come in her kid. <laughs> it's either your grandma or your dad or you some know, weird actually, uncle do, do or you, something. Do you want to know what is ad- Christmas like? <laughs> do you want to know the advice, the actual advice my dad gave me? Word for word, he didn't say. He did not say, "Deny them your essence." Do you know what he actually said? What did he actually say? Verbatim, he said, "Just don't fuck up." <laughs> that's what he said to me when I started. When I when I got to the age where I started was where I was interested in girls. That's what he would say. Uh-huh. Just don't fuck up. Oh well. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> it's a good thing you held on to that advice for fifteen years. I've uh, given it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't. We you know when I did finally lose my virginity at age thirty, it served me very well. <laughs> I bet it did. You must have been so concerned. My dad's not the fuck up, but he didn't say anything after that. That's why I just did it in my pants. I'm sorry. Was that wrong? I'm sorry. Don't look at me. You know what my dad said? What did your dad say? Nothing, because he was scared of my sexuality. Don't talk to me about that shit. <laughs> He'd just go, no, no, and he'd slam his hands over his ears and run out of the room. Flee. He would just flee your presence. I can't talk about this. I don't want to talk about this. All I said was, there's a girl I'm interested in, Dad. And he's like, no, right out the plate glass window. No. (laughs) 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 So that's why we're so normal now. That's why we're both so normal. That's right. Thanks for trusting our opinions. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Late Seating is a Let Me Listen podcast production featuring Steve Shives and Jason Harding. Produced by Jason Harding. Theme music, Rollin' at Five, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more Let Me Listen podcast productions at our website at www.letmelistenpodcast.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, or just about anywhere you download podcasts. Late Seating is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support Late Seating or any of the other Let Me Listen productions for as little as $1 a month, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Listen. And thanks for listening.